I hear the murmuring. I know some of you are thinking, two songs. What was that? I want my money back. Let me, uh, let me draw a couple things to your attention. One, you haven't paid any money yet, so just relax. Um, to, to you, you'll get a chance later in the service to have more extended time of worship in response to the word. And that is done, um, that's done this morning to accommodate me because uh, as soon as I'm done preaching, I'm going there. Um, Steph and I leave uh, just shortly after lunch to fly to the Calgary Banff area of Canada to celebrate our 25th anniversary. And that is a... Thank you. <clears throat> Really, to, to celebrate uh, two great kindnesses. One, your great kindness to us, because this trip is a gift from you to our, uh, Steph and I, and we are so um, stunned by your goodness and God's goodness to us through you. And secondly, just the celebration of being loved in a way that you are so wholly undeserving uh, for 25 years. This is going to be a great week for me. And I think Steph's probably celebrating something like God's ability to persevere or something like that. <laughs> so, um, so, anyway, I will be leaving shortly after this, so you will have a chance to respond to the word with a time of corporate worship and an offering at the close of the service. So, let me pray for our time in the word together, if I could. Lord, um, we, we are, as Daniel acknowledged, so needy of your grace, and your grace comes to us through this book. The Spirit takes it and does things to our lives if we will heed him that are so gracious and kind to us. So grant us faith to obey the hard calling this morning that you put before us. That's where our joy lies. And I ask this for each and every one here, Christ in your name. Amen. The picture on the screen is of the Banff area, and I am going to leave it up there and put lyrics on it, or the lyrics of scriptures on it. That makes it a little hard to read, but believe it or not, the verses that I put on that screen can also be found in your Bibles. <laughs> so you may want to open to 1 Samuel chapter 23 so you can follow along well and not get lost in the mountainous background. We are... We are going through a series in First and Second Samuel. At this point, King Saul, the king of God's people, has gone over to the dark side. All right? He has just ordered, last week we saw, in the, he has just ordered the slaughter of 85 priests and their families, women, children, and livestock. Because these priests quite unknowingly aided David who is the anointed king who will succeed Saul. They aided David in fleeing from Saul. David is now fleeing for his very life, and Saul is in, as we'll see, an almost insane pursuit, relentless pursuit, seeking to kill a man that he knows to be God's anointed man to be king, and a good man, a man Saul himself would say is more righteous than he. So in chapter 23, that's kind of our setting, we find that David, who is on the run, is told, look, the Philistines, the enemies of God's people, are fighting against Calah, one of the Israelite cities, and are looting the threshing floors where the grain was stored for the people. He inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord answered him, go attack the Philistines. 
and save Caleb. Now again, in these stories in First and Second Samuel, David comes to us as the anointed king of Israel, which makes us think of a greater anointed king who is Jesus the Christ. And David many times, and this chapter is one of those times, where he kind of anticipates Christ by his virtuous character and great faith. Now last week we saw he doesn't always anticipate Christ because there's sin in this man's life. But this is one of those weeks where he's presented to us as a Christ figure who anticipates Christ. This time because of his shepherd's heart. Think about it with me. David is fleeing for his very life. Saul, with an army probably fivefold larger than David, is hunting him down. And David hears that there's a city of God's people who are in trouble. And his first reaction is, God, should I go help them? Should I go to that dangerous place and help them? David, David is exemplary in this way, as we are to be. He exemplifies what we're called to be in Philippians chapter 2. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better or more important than yourselves. Each of you should not look, should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. And it goes on to say, this is the way of Christ. This is what it means to follow Christ, is to put sacrificially the interests of others above our own. And <clears throat> David makes us think about this. It's not just David for me that makes me think about this. this. This verse has become the central tenet of my life in terms of what it means to follow Christ. And I think that's because this verse has been silently chanted, if you will, before me for 25 years now in the conduct of my wife, Stephanie. She serves our family every day, putting our interests above her own. Um, you know, last night, she was up until all hours of the night readying our family for the time that we're going to be away. And that's, just, that's her pattern. It's what she does. Others' interests are above her own. And so sometime in those 25 years, it clicked onto me and I realized, this is the way of Christ. This is what it means to follow Christ, is to do what David did and what Paul called us to do and what Christ himself demonstrated and what my wife has been hammering into me all these years. That others are more important. And that we are like Christ when we exalt them above our own selves. Well, back in our chapter, David's men, however, said to him, Look, here in Judah, we're afraid because Saul's after us. How much more than if we go to Keilah against the Philistine forces because Keilah is a city that's right on the border of the Philistine territory. And so they are scared about this idea. So David inquires of God again. He says, The Lord answered him, Go down to Keilah, for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. God promises that he will be with him and he'll give him victory. So David and his men went to Keilah, fought the Philistines, and carried off their livestock, and inflicted heavy losses on the Philistines, and saved the people of Keilah. You know, the promise of God to be with them and to fight for them is enough for David and his men. At apparent great risk, they obey God, they engage the Philistine adversaries at this city called Keilah, and they prevail. Just underscore two very important things. One, the promise of God is enough to trust God in the face of your fears. The promise of God is enough for you. Secondly, though, David seeks God in order to obey God. 
This is not mere curiosity. Hey, guys, I wonder what God thinks about this. Let's see what God thinks. He's not trying to just surface another option. Uh, we don't have any good options. Let's see if God's got an option for us. David is seeking God with one expressed intent. When he finds out what God wants him to do, he will do it. Oftentimes, we, however, are not looking to find out what God wants us to do so we can go do it. We are looking to God for an endorsement of what we already want to do. And that's a question that comes to us out of this. When you seek God, are you really seeking God so that you'll know what to do? Or are you seeking God so he'll endorse what you've already decided you really want to do? There's a huge difference. And David here seeks God's direction, not his endorsement, because he understands how dangerous it is to live outside the will of God. Doesn't want to live there. Doesn't want to go there. There's no safer place for David than the dangerous will of God. And the same is true for us. Now, the last verse there says, Abiathar, son of Ahimelech, had brought the ephah down with him when he fled uh, to David at Keilah. Now, you may remember his name. He was the only surviving priest from the slaughter of priests that Saul did last week in chapters 21 and 22. So he has now come to David so that he can serve David as priest. David has spared his life, um, saved his life, essentially. But he mentions that he has an ephod. This verse is here primarily to let us know how David figured out the will of God at this particular juncture. The priest wore a linen garment called an ephod, and in it were quite possibly a couple of stones. We're not exactly sure. They were referred to at times as, let me make sure I I get this right, Um, the Urim and the Thummim. Okay? We would say like lots. You cast lots with these stones. And they would cast these lots. The priest wouldn't figure out whether God wanted them to do something or didn't want them to do something. So in this case, he says, should I go attack? The priest (laughs) rolls lots. And it would discern the will of God for the people. Now, you need to know this was not widely used. Not used for a great length of time. It dies out not long after this in, in the life of God's people. Um, and our tendency is to think, man, where can I get me some um and some thumb? And I can know what God's will is. Whew, come on, God. Do I take this job or not? Roll that out there. You know, we ought not be envious of David in this matter. For people who have the entire revealed will of God in this book and then, according to the language of the Bible, are indwelt by the very Spirit of God, we not ought, might not be envious of this matter. We are, we are the most led people in the history of Christendom with the Word of God and the Spirit of God. We don't need these matters anymore. So don't be envious of David. Be thankful for that which God has entrusted to you. He's given you enough. His spirit and his word are enough to guide you daily in the decisions that you need. Add to that the wise counsel that comes from God's people. And we are the best led people in history at this juncture. Well, it continues in verse 7. Saul finds out that David had in fact gone to Calah. And he said, God has handed David over to me, for he has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. And Saul called up all his forces for battle to go down to Calah and to besiege David and his men. When David learned that Saul was plotting against him, he said to Abiathar the priest, Bring me the ephod. 
I need to know God's will. David said, O Lord, God of Israel, your servant has heard definitely that Saul plans to come to Keilah and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Keilah surrender me to him? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord, God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. Again, David asked, will the citizens of Keilah surrender me and my men to Saul? Again, David has that concern for his men, that heart of a shepherd. And the Lord said, they will. So David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. What we have here is a striking contrast between Saul and David. Thus far in this chapter and the previous chapters, just think about it with me. David here is seeking God's leadership repeatedly. It is never once recorded in this chapter that Saul seeks God's direction. Not once. Instead, he merely presumes that favorable circumstances are an endorsement of God for his plans. David consults the priests. Saul kills them. David saves the cities. Saul destroys them. David is deeply concerned for the people of the city of Keilah. He's willing to risk his life and his men's lives. And Saul shows absolutely no concern for these people. Where was Saul when the Philistines were attacking Keilah? In fact, it's highly likely that one of the principal motivations for the people of Keilah being willing to betray David, should it come to that, is the fear of what Saul would do to them. Remember Nob, the city from last week? They helped David and the entire city was slaughtered by Saul. We also see here God's wonderful provision for David. He reveals the future to David in order to protect him. And again, David trusts God's revelation and he follows it unquestionably. For David, there is no surer revelation, no truer truth, no more certain prediction than the revealed will of God. David's confidence in it is unwavering here. And Saul is just a black backdrop so we can see the beauty of David's heart for God in places like this. But having seen this uh, portrait of David, it would be easy to think David is really doing well here. In fact, he seems to be really vulnerable at this point in time to discouragement. It's not an easy time for him. In verse 13, uh, David and his men, about 600 in number, left Keilah and kept moving from place to place. When Saul was told that David had escaped from Keilah, he did not go there. David stayed in the desert strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him. But God did not give David into his hands. While David was at Horish in the desert of Ziph, he learned that Saul had come out to take his life. See, David has just provoked the Philistines, the enemies of God, one more time. His own men are afraid. His life is threatened by Saul. Day by day, every day, Saul is pursuing him in order to take his life with a force that's probably fivefold as big as David's force. 
It's a time when discouragement and fear could easily plague him. So God does something extraordinarily beautiful for David. He sends to him a man named Jonathan. If you remember the story from a couple weeks ago, David's very best friend comes to him. Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish and helped him find strength in God. What a beautiful expression. He says, don't be afraid. My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel, and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. The two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and then Jonathan went home, but David remained at Horish, and the Ziphites went up to Saul to betray David. Jonathan is Saul's own son, and he steals away and comes to encourage his friend David. This is, this is tremendous encouragement. This is not just encouragement with your words. This is, in, this is the embodiment of encouragement. Just that Jonathan would come is great personal risk. The last time Jonathan stood up for David in Saul's presence, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with a spear. And yet Jonathan still comes. And he humbles himself. He says, David, you will be king. And I will be second to you. See, the throne was rightfully Jonathan's. And yet here he acknowledges David. Again, it's, it's this passage fleshed out again in the life of Jonathan. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, in his case, consider David more important than yourself. Look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. That's David in Jonathan's case. You know, I don't know anything more encouraging than our brother and sister in Christ who will come to you at great risk and personal sacrifice and strengthen you in God. I love that language. This is not the power of positive thinking kind of encouragement. This is not, can I please boost your self-esteem kind of encouragement. This is not, can I give you a warm fuzzy. This is to be strengthened in God. And the way that he does it is by re-emphasizing the promises of God to David. Back again in verse 17, he says, My father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be. You will be king over Israel. That is God's promise. It's as though Jonathan is reminding him of that day long ago when David's own father sent for him as a young shepherd boy. And he came and it says... The Lord said when David came, rise and anoint him. He is the one. And Samuel, the great prophet, took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. It's as though Jonathan is coming to him saying, do you remember that day, David? Remember the promise God gave you? It's true. Don't be afraid. And I... I don't know anything that's needed in the church today more than Jonathan's who will come alongside of us and say to us words like this, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have because God has said to you, he's promised you, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say together with confidence, we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? We need people who will say, remember the promises of God. 
Remember your great sacred vows. Remember those vows you made? We need people who come and say, remember you vowed for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part according to God's own holy word. I pledge my faithfulness to you. We need people who help us remember heaven and say, remember that it's promised you by God and it's worth it all. Remember that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. It's worth it. We need people who come alongside and strengthen us in God. And I've been so blessed through my life to have people that will will do this. Some kind of serendipitously and some as part of ongoing relationship. I remember I became a Christ follower age 17, followed my junior year in high school. And for one reason or another, they asked me to give my testimony in church. And I wrote out my testimony of how I came to know Christ. And I stood up and I delivered, I'm sure rather badly, this testimony. And this lady, her name was Marcella, came up to me afterwards. And she said, you should be a pastor. And I was, I'd been trained by my mother to be respectful. Or I would have said, you should be locked up somewhere. But as it turns out, that prompting didn't go away. It was infirmed at another couple more crucial junctures. And then I can remember, I'm about to graduate and finish my training in seminary. And I'd been talking to this church. It was called North Wake Baptist Church. I'd been talking to them about coming to be their pastor of all things. I'd never pastored anything in my life. And these people decided they wanted me to come and be their pastor. And I'd been taught to be respectful, so I didn't say anything. But I was thinking, you should be locked up. <laughs> I remember talking with one of my seminary professors. I'm thinking... Tell him, I don't think I'm ready for this. I don't think I can do this. I really don't want to be a lead pastor. I want to be an associate pastor so I can just try to figure this stuff out. And he said to me, he said, you can do this. God can do this through you. And so now I find myself here. And I've been here 16 years because God has surrounded me here with Jonathans. Our pastoral staff, if you know these men, they're Jonathans. Our elders are Jonathans. And the only reason that I haven't quit is because God has surrounded me with Jonathans who strengthen me in God. And please don't take this wrong, but I'm married to a Jonathan. (laughs) Her name is Stephanie. And Steph is, uh, her way of encouraging me is by writing me notes and just affirming That in fact, though she knows me inside and out, she believes that God can use even me in these ways. Oh, how we need Jonathans. Who's your Jonathan? Can I flip it around? Whose Jonathan are you? You know, Jonathan flows, a Jonathan-type relationship flows best out of deep, rich friendship. Who do you know in this room well enough that they know what you're struggling with right now, what your fears are, so that they can come alongside and really strengthen you in God? Lone Ranger Christians, don't get to be Jonathan. And they don't meet Jonathans either. Will you be Jonathan where you work? Will you be Jonathan where you go to school? Will you be Jonathan on your team, in your home, in this place? Because I don't know anything that the church needs more right now.
and people who will strengthen us in God like Jonathan. Well, our passage ends with a fascinating turn of events. The Ziphites, who are scoundrels, by the way, went up to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding amongst us in the strongholds at Horesh, on the hill of Hakila, south of Jeshimon? Now, king, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we'll be responsible for handing David over to you. They are going to betray David to Saul. Saul replied, May the Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and make further preparation. Find out where David usually goes and has seen him there. They tell me he's very crafty. Find out about all the hiding places he uses and come back to me with definite information. Then I'll go with you. And if he's in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. Notice again, though Saul uses the name of God, he does not seek God. He seeks the wisdom and strategies of men. What will the reconnaissance of men bring? Nothing wrong with strategies. Nothing wrong with the wisdom of men. Proverbs urges wisdom from others upon us. Many counselors, there's much wisdom. But the wisdom and counsel of men, the strategies and reconnaissance of men, makes a lousy substitute for the direction of God. And Saul has substituted it in that way. So, these Ziphites set out, went to Ziph ahead of Saul, and David and his men were in the desert of Maon in the, in the Arabah, south of Jeshimon. Saul and his men began to search. And when David was told about it, he went down to the rock and stayed in the desert of Maon. When Saul heard this, he went into the desert of Maon in pursuit of David. Saul was going along one side of the mountain, and David and his men were on the other side, hurrying to get away from Saul. So you get the picture. Same mountain, two forces. David's running for his life. And it says, as Saul and his forces were closing in on David and his men to capture them, at just that moment, a messenger, a messenger came to Saul. Now, let me read you what it says, and then I'll tell you something interesting about this messenger. Maybe about this messenger. You figure it out. It says, come quickly. The Philistines are raiding the land. And Saul broke off his pursuit of David and went to meet the Philistines. And that's why they call the place Selah Hamalah, which means the rock of parting. All right? And David went up from there and lived in the strongholds of En Gedi. So at just the precise moment, a messenger says up and says, Saul, the fox is in the hen house. And Saul has to stop. You know, it's always fascinating to me that the Hebrew word for messenger is also the word we render angel. And I just wonder, who is that messenger that showed up at just the right time? See, God is ruling in this story. God uses the report of a Philistine raid to rescue David's, spare his own life. Back in verse 14, it says, David stayed in the desert strongholds in the hills in the desert of Ziph. Day after day saw search for him, but God did not give David into his hands. God is protecting David. <clears throat> not only by his might, but by an extraordinary display of his, of his omniscience, his knowledge of all things. Remember back in verse 10, David says, Lord God of Israel, your servant is Heard definitely 
that Saul plans to come to Cala and destroy the town on account of me. Will the citizens of Cala surrender me? Will Saul come down as your servant is heard? O Lord God of Israel, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will. He will. And David asked again, will the citizens of Cala surrender me and my men to Saul? And the Lord said, they will. They sure will. But what's interesting about this is it never, ever happened. David left the city. Saul never came. People never turned him over. And this tells us something extraordinary about the extent of God's knowledge of the future. He doesn't just know what happens. He knows what could happen with the same kind of clarity and authority. He knows all future possibilities, it would seem. Some say that God can't know those things because they can't be known. But here God knows what Saul will do, what the people of Cala will do. God knows the future. He knows all the what-ifs and but-what-abouts in our future. And so this is another one of those circumstances where um, David is prompted by God to write a psalm. It's Psalm 54, and the kind of prescript to this is not written in in here. I want to read part of it to you. It says, um, For the director of music with stringed instruments, a masculine of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, Is not David hiding among us? So this psalm is written in exactly these circumstances. And David says to God, as the Ziphites have betrayed him to Saul, Save me, O God, by your name. Vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God. Listen to the words of my mouth. Strangers are attacking me. Ruthless men seek my life. Without Men without regard for God. Selah. Then he says, surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. David trusts in God when he is in the most dangerous, scary part of his life. He's watched God protect him from Saul time and time again by his great might. He's watched God protect him by his perfect knowledge of all things future. Where else would David go but to God? She says, surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me from Saul and the Ziphites who chase me. Where else would you go with the thing that you are facing right now that scares you? Will you trust the God who has delivered you every day of your life up until now? Will you trust God, the God who knows your future fully, Every single possibility in your future, God knows. Will you trust it? In what's facing you, will you seek that God? Will you stop running ahead of God and running on the wisdom of men and the strategies and the business plans and all the stuff and stop and pray and seek God with what's before you? Lastly, will you be a Jonathan? Will you be a man or a woman who helps people trust and seek God like that? Will you be somebody who comes alongside people and doesn't just make them feel good, but you strengthen them in God as you remind them of His great and precious promises? 
Well, if those questions are pressing on you, um, we'd like to give you an opportunity to respond. You can grab somebody near you for prayer or as our worship team comes now to lead us in, a, in an extended worship response to the word this morning. If you'd like to come forward, one of our leaders will just come alongside you and ask how they can pray for you or they'll just pray for you as God leads them. Will you seek and trust this amazing God who sovereignly rules and knows even the possibilities of our future? Will you be Jonathan to your brothers and sisters who are around you? Let me pray for you and then we'll close in song. Lord, I pray for these before me. I pray for my own soul that we would trust you. Where else would we go but a God who knows all the details of our possible futures. A God who protects men chased by far greater military forces. A God who loves us and has demonstrated it by the death of his own son on our behalf. Where else would we go? So this morning, God, we come to you. We say we'll trust you. Life itself will trust you. God, we confess that it's just nothing short of foolishness to not seek you at every turn. We don't have an ephod and lots to cast, but we can pray to an all-knowing, all-seeing, loving God. Some of us have just run, run ahead of you. And this morning, God, I pray that you'd draw us back in to the safest place on earth the dangerous will of God for our lives and oh Lord put Jonathan's bias as we seek to trust you raise up in this room an army of Jonathan's who will strengthen one another in God and may you find great pleasure in it as we consecrate our entire lives to you let's stand